Today's scripture is from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. If you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, as we are continuing our series, uh, preaching through the gospel according to Mark. And as always, we'll have Bibles in the back you can grab on your way in. Uh, feel free to grab one of those. Uh, pull up a Bible app on your device. Uh, we'll have some scriptures up on the screen, but I'd encourage you to have, have the word in front of you as well. So Mark chapter 12, we're going to be starting in verse 28. And as you're turning there, I want to share with you what is called the Hippocratic Oath. Now, Hippocrates is often called and known as to be, to be the father of medicine in Western culture. And so the Hippocratic Oath is an oath that's been taken by many medical providers as they're entering into their medical careers. Uh, at least some form of it. You see, in the original form, like back in the day in ancient Greece, uh, medical students would uh, take the oath and it required them to, to like swear by a bunch of like false gods and, and it got really weird. Uh, but what we know it best known for today by practitioners that take the oath is we know this phrase, first do no harm. First do no harm. That's an oath that many medical providers and practitioners take as they enter into the workforce and taking care of patients. It's to first do no harm. Now, there are a lot of rules in medicine to remember. There are a lot of treatment plans to remember. There's a lot of rules to follow, hundreds and thousands of rules to follow in modern medicine. Uh, but really, there is this one important one that supersedes and summarizes all the others. And it is first, do no harm. Like wh whatever decision you make for a patient, whatever, whatever treatment plan you're putting together, whether it's to decide to treat or to not to treat, whether it's to operate or not to operate, whether it's to refer or not to refer, uh, the provider has to weigh the risks and the benefits and make sure that first and foremost, they are doing no harm to the patient. And this, is, this rule in medicine, it really summarizes all the other ones. And there was a time when I worked in the ER that a child came in who possibly had meningitis. And meningitis workups in the ER are pretty extensive because it can get really serious really fast if it's bacterial meningitis. And so it's usually not a fun one that we like to see in the ER because it takes a lot of time to do the spinal tap and the workup and the waiting room gets backed up and you get really busy. And so it's not something that we would look forward to. 
But when you would go see someone who possibly had meningitis, you had to be thorough. Even if, it, even if you would bet they didn't have it, you had to be thorough because if there was a chance that they had it and you sent them home, there could be great harm to them. And so you had to be thorough and, and, and work it up extensively. And there was one time that uh, I was seeing a patient and one of the doctors walked past the room and pulled me out of the room and it was like, hey, just to give you a heads up, uh, not to stress you out, but I know the parents in the room and uh, of the child that you're seeing and the dad is a medical malpractice lawyer. So just not to stress you out, Grant, but just a heads up, Right. Like, oh, gee, like, thank you. Thanks for giving that uh, heads up. Uh, because the second unwritten rule in medicine behind do no harm is don't get sued. All right. That's the it's not a written one, but it's definitely on the top of our minds. And so uh, there's a lot of rules in medicine. But the first one, do no harm, it really summarizes all the rest pretty well. When you can't remember all the other ones, remember that one, do no harm. And in our text today, Jesus is confronted by one of the scribes who essentially is asking him, what's the most important rule, Jesus? What's the greatest command that God has given us? And now, now, so far in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the Jews of that time, they were sending different people to Jesus to try to trap him or accuse him of something so they could arrest him and kill him. And so we've seen the Pharisees and the Herodians be sent to question him. Last week, we saw the Sadducees be sent to question him. And now one of the scribes has heard how Jesus has responded to these other lines of questioning. And this scribe is impressed, and so he presents to Jesus a question of his own. Now, the scribes were almost like the lawyers of the day, okay? In fact, scribe and lawyer are used interchangeably in the New Testament. And most scribes were a part of the sect of the Pharisees, and they were experts in the law of God. They knew all the rules, which is saying something because Jewish rabbis counted 613 commandments in the first five books of the Old Testament called the Torah or the Pentateuch, right? And not only were there 613 commandments, but then the Pharisees would add a bunch of their own uh, uh, rules as well to that. And the scribes knew all of them. The scribes were experts in the law. A scribe in that time was like a Torah professor meets a civil lawyer combined. And people, people honored the scribes in that day. We'll learn in a couple of weeks that they were the ones that got the best seats in the synagogue. They were the ones that had the places of honor at feast. And so people honored them and they respected them. And so this wasn't just anyone asking Jesus a question about the law. This was like a law professor asking Jesus about the law. And you see, today's passage is so important for you, and it is so important for me, because this, our, our Bible, God's Word, it says a lot, right? Like, there's, there's a lot going on here. And, and it will take a lifetime and then some to fully know and explore and enjoy this word that God has given us. But there is a commandment that summarizes all the others. 
There is a truth that when we can't remember all the other truths, there is a truth that we can go back to and know that it encapsulates all the others. And just like the, the Hippocratic Oath does in medicine, right? There is a commandment of God that should be most important to us. It is primary. It should be on the front of our, our minds and our hearts. It should be of primary importance in our lives. And that is what Jesus wants to teach us today. This is a big, a big passage. We've got to be locked in and ready to hear Jesus' teaching on this. So uh, I, know, I know Joshua said a prayer, but let me pray one more time for us, and we'll dive into the text. Father God, we do not come to your word lightly, uh, for we know that your words have life, that they have transforming power, that they awaken dead hearts, to new life in you, that they stir up a complacent love for you. And so, Spirit, we ask that you would awaken us, that we would awaken us to your love, that you would awaken us to your truth, that you would give us ears to really hear what you are teaching us this morning, and give us hearts that will respond and enjoy and delight in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, are you guys ready? Yep. All right, Mark 12, verse 28. Mark 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? A scribe, who we already have talked about a little bit, poses a question, right? Which commandment is the most important? There are a lot of laws that have been written. There are a lot of oral laws that the rabbis and the Pharisees have given, but which one is primary? Which one encapsulates or summarizes all the rest? What's the one of primary importance is what he's asking Jesus. Now, now listen, this was not an uncommon question. Teachers of the law would often try to summarize the law down into a few main points. And teachers, we still do this today, right? Uh, we like to give you a passage of Scripture and then give you three or four main points that all start with the same letter or they all rhyme or they spell an acronym, right? Like we're trying to, to take down a big passage and give you some memorable points about it. And so this isn't an unreasonable question for Jesus. This is a question that many teachers and, and writers had, had dealt with. And we don't know exactly what this scribe's posture is uh, towards Jesus either, okay? We, we can assume by how Jesus ends the conversation with the scribe by saying that he's not far from the kingdom, we can probably assume the best of this scribe, that unlike the other questioners that have come to Jesus, he's actually trying to, he actually wants to know what Jesus thinks about and, and wants to hear an answer from Jesus. But this was not an uncommon question to ask teachers and rabbis, even, even some of the prophets and writers in the Old Testament made attempts at summarizing the law as well. For example, if you guys do have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 15. Psalm chapter 15. Psalm is usually right in the middle of your Bible, right before Proverbs, right after uh, Job. If you've got a big study Bible with lots of notes or maps or something, it might be off, but usually right in the middle, Psalm 15. 
This is a psalm of David. In Psalm 15, verse 1, he writes, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? David is asking the question, like, who's going to enjoy living in the presence of God? Who's going to enjoy living in the kingdom of God and, and, and being in a right relationship with God? And so now he's going to kind of try to summarize down the law of God into 11 points. Verse 2, number 1, he who walks blamelessly. We're going to go quick through these, okay? Number two, and does what is right. Number three, and speaks truth in his heart. Number four, who does not slander with his tongue. Number five, and does no evil to his neighbor. Number six, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Number seven, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. Number eight, who honors those who fear the Lord. Number nine, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Number 10, who does not put out his money at interest. Number 11, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Okay, take a breath. The point is not to necessarily go through all of those right now. You can certainly do that on your own. But you see, David is trying to kind of summarize and get the law down into 11 points. Obviously, we have the Ten Commandments that God gave us. Uh, but I think Jesus is going to outdo him a little bit here. Uh, we, we later in the Old Testament see Isaiah do a similar thing. And you can go there on your own time. Isaiah 33, verse 15. Isaiah gets it down to six points. And then Micah takes it a step further. We'll have this one up on the screen. Micah 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, number one, and number two, to love kindness, and number three, to walk humbly with your God. Not bad. Micah gets it down to three. And we still do this, right? This is, this is one of the reasons that we love kind of reintroducing catechisms to our children and to our people. Why in our emails we send out the new city catechisms because catechisms are a great way to try to funnel down all of this biblical doctrine and truth into some memorable questions and answers. For example, the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? And man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Right? You get there eventually by reading God's word enough. You get there eventually, but it helps summarize and, and take down truth so that we can remember it. Go ahead and turn back to Mark chapter 12. And so we've seen other teachers and writers and even the Old Testament prophets do this, try to summarize and encapsulate the law into a memorable, uh, shorter commandment. And so this scribe asks, what's the most important commandment, Jesus? What's the primary one? What commandment, Jesus, do you say should come first? This is a big question. Big question. Let's see how Jesus answers in verse 29, Mark 12, verse 29. And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. 
Now let's, let's understand where Jesus is going when he answers these, like where he's pulling this from. Jesus first responds with what Jewish people call the Shema. The Shema. The Shema is the Hebrew word for hear or listen. And it's from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That Hebrew word here is Shema. And so uh, Jewish uh, people is called this prayer uh, the Shema. And they, it, devout Jews pray it every morning and every evening. And it's how they start a lot of their gatherings. But the word Shema, it means more than just to hear. Like, it means more than just sound vibrations coming into your ear. The word Shema, it's, it's a call to yes, hear, but it's a, it's a call to pay attention. It's a call to really listen. And it's a call to respond. Not just in one ear and out the other. When God says Shema, hear, he's saying really listen and be ready to Respond, pay attention and respond. And it starts with, Hear, O Israel, Shema, O Israel. Really listen, pay attention. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, for us, that might seem like a, a, a simplistic, maybe obvious phrase the Lord is one. But the people of God in that time, they were surrounded by cultures that had many lowercase g false gods. And so this is a call to listen and love the one true God. The, the phrase, the Lord is one, is such a unique statement because it separates God from all other objects of worship. Like God alone, our one true God is to be worshipped and is to be loved and is to be listened to. And Jesus then goes on in verse 30, right? In Mark 12, verse 30, he says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. We are to love God with all our emotions and affections. Jesus says we're to love the Lord your God with all your soul, right? All our spirit and our prayers and what's deep down inside of us. We are to love the Lord your God also with all our mind. We're to love God with our understanding and our intelligence and our thought life. And he says we're to love the Lord your God with all our strength. Our physical bodies, our energy, our wills are to love God. Essentially, we are to love God with all that we are, right? He's saying we are to complete, uh, have complete devotion to God, to love him with, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then he says this in verse 31. He doesn't just stop there with a complete devotion to God. He says in verse 31, 31, excuse me. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus has just referenced the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, and now he's referencing Leviticus 19, where God had instructed his people to love their neighbors. 
And so when Jesus is asked which command sums up all the other commands, he says, love God and love your neighbor. No other rabbi or teacher up until this point had put those two together before Jesus. Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, love God, love neighbor. No other rabbi or teacher before him had put those two together. Love God, love your neighbor. And what's even crazier about that combo is that we know Jesus in his other teachings has also redefined who your neighbor is, right? Like in the Old Testament, the understanding of who your neighbor was, it was your fellow uh, Jewish neighbor, Neighbor didn't refer to the Gentiles that surrounded them or non-Israelites. But what Jesus teaches us in the parable of the Good Samaritan, which we don't have time to go to today, but he expands the concept of neighbor to not just include those that are just like you, but to include everyone that you come into contact with, even your enemies or people you despise. So Jesus teaches us and redefines what neighbor is and essentially everyone we come into contact with, even our enemies, right? Even those we don't like, even those that aren't just like us, they are our neighbors and we are to love them like we love ourselves. However, the problem that we sometimes fall into with this understanding that our neighbor is everyone is in reality, sometimes our neighbor becomes no one, right? If our neighbor is everyone, we're thinking of everyone as our neighbor, we sometimes really love no one like God calls us to love our neighbor as ourself. But get this, the term for neighbors that Jesus says we should love like we love ourselves, this term does in fact include our neighbor's. I know that might sound crazy, right? Like, like it does, in fact, include our next-door neighbors. And we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. G.K. Chesterton once wrote this. He said, we choose our friends, we choose our enemies, but God chooses our next-door neighbors. Or maybe your realtor does as well, but, you know, essentially it's God, Right? Like, we have to love our neighbors because they are there. And G.K. Chesterton goes on to write, he says, the nearness of our neighbor is providential as God never gets the address wrong. I like that. God never gets the address wrong. And so let me ask you this morning, how have you loved your neighbor? How have you loved those that God has providentially placed around you? Or really, let me, let me ask you the question, how do you respond to these commands that God gives? I mean, here is Jesus being asked a question about which commandment is the most important, and he answers with, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Like, how, how do you respond to that? 
And before we get to how I think we should respond, let's talk about two common but wrong responses to when we hear commands from God and we try to understand the relationship between God's law and God's gospel. Because we do believe that, yes, God gives us commands, but we also believe that we're saved by grace through faith. And so how does the law and the gospel work together? And the two errors that can occur when we don't understand how the law and gospel work together are legalism and licentiousness, which is a big word, and I practiced how to say that. Uh, Legalism and licentiousness. So the definition of legalism, all right, people that are legalistic leaning or people that are just full on in the camp of legalism, these are people who are continuing to live under the law, believing that God's approval is somehow dependent on their right conduct. People continue to live under the law, believing that God's approval is somehow dependent on their right conduct. But then another error that can happen when we don't understand how the law and gospel fit together is this idea of licentiousness. And people that might, some people might be leaning this way, some people might be full on in this camp, but these are people who dismiss the law, believing that since they are under grace, God's rules don't matter at all. People typically, when they don't have a right understanding between law and gospel and how they relate to one another, uh, they usually lean into one of these groups that are both in error. And in my experience, people in those groups are usually very concerned about the other group, uh, but they're not really aware of their own errors. Right? Like people in the legalistic group or even legalism kind of leaning, they're very concerned about any teaching that could maybe give people a license to sin, right? And they, they don't want anything that's going to cause people to fall on that. And then the people that kind of are more licentiousness leaning, they don't want any teaching that could possibly uh, cause people to start to live a legalistic way, like we have to earn our favor with God. And so if you're reading those and you've got a group of people in your mind that falls into one of those camps, let me first encourage you to do a heart check and see if you are maybe in the opposite camp. But listen, both are in error. Both are not how we are to respond to the commands and the grace of God. Because listen, Some of you will hear the command to love God and love others, and you will leave here determined to love God and love others. Like you probably already got your 90-day action plan that you're jotting out, right? The goals that you're going to do, like I'm going to mow my neighbor's yard. I'm going to make them cookies. I'm going to have 14 quiet times this week, right? Like I am going to just by sheer willpower and discipline, I'm going to love God and love others. You're going to try harder. You're going to leave here just determined to try harder. And then you're going to try to sleep better at night, thinking that your better conduct has earned you favor and a right standing with God. And listen, I've tried to live that way. Many people try to live that way, but you're going to tire yourself out in about two weeks. 
and go back to living the way you are now. But then some of you, maybe you won't respond that way. Maybe some of you will hear the command to love God and love others, and you're like, hey, there is no way that I can love God with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, all my strength, and there's no way I can love my neighbor as myself. I mean, have you met my neighbor? They've got like eight dogs. They bark in the middle of the night. They relieve themselves in my yard and I step in it, right? They knock over my mailbox every winter when the roads get icy. Uh, and the SWAT team has gone through my yard to arrest them before. These are all things I could say of my old neighbor, right? Okay, this is real, all right? Like, like some of you are going to leave here. It's like, there's no way I could love my neighbor as I love myself. And so because of that, who who cares about this command? I'm saved by God's grace. He'll forgive me, right? Doesn't he have to forgive me? I said a prayer. I raised my hand. I'm not under law. I'm under grace. So who cares about this command to love God and love my neighbor? And I believe that both legalism and licentiousness are incorrect responses to the commands and the grace of God. Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, he helps us understand how the law and the gospel work together. And so uh, if you can, if you can see that, try to follow along as I read it. He writes, The law, rightly understood and thoroughly comprehended, does nothing more than remind us of our sin and slay us by it and make us liable to eternal wrath. The law is not kept by man's own power, but solely through Christ, who pours the Holy Spirit into our hearts. To fulfill the law is to do its work with pleasure and love, which are put into the heart by the Holy Ghost. And you can leave that up on the screen for a little bit. People maybe need to reread that and reflect on that. But you see, this command from Jesus to love God and love others, at first it sounds really nice and really sweet, right? Like we could probably make some Christian t-shirts with this, right? Love God, love others. This is a good coffee mug one. Uh, I could probably write like a good devotional thought for the day, right? Love God, love others. It's really sweet. Sounds good. But hold up. We're saying that Jesus is summarizing all the commands of God, all the law of God with this. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Here's, here's my problem. I don't always love God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength. And I most definitely don't always love my neighbor as myself. Now, maybe you're better than me, but I think if we were all honest with ourselves, we would say that, that yeah, we don't always love God with all that we are, and we don't always love our neighbors as ourselves. And so this commandment, while it sounds really sweet and nice, 
this commandment is actually condemning to us. Like, uh, imagine being a doctor who keeps some of the rules, uh, but you fail at the primary one every day. Do no harm. Like, we as image bearers of God have failed at obeying the primary command God has given. So what are we to do? Are we to go and try harder? Are we to give up and just kind of presume on God's grace? Or is there a better alternative? Listen, your study of God's laws, your study of God's commands, your study of Jesus' teachings should first and foremost reveal to you your need of a Savior. Like all of your study of God's word, the preaching you hear, the Bible studies you go to, the Sunday school that you were raised in, the verses you memorize, the devotions that you look at each and every day, like the commands of God that you learn should not puff up your head. They should quicken your feet to run to a Savior. What we learn from God's word should make us all the more run to Jesus because the law has revealed our need for a savior. The law has revealed our inability to keep it and to delight in it. And then what happens when we run to Jesus? Does he say, forget the law? No, he says, I'm the fulfillment of the law, and I'm going to fulfill the law in you. Jesus, in our place, perfectly met the requirements of the law so that we could be declared right and accepted by God. But then, get this, he then gives us his spirit so that we might be enabled and empowered to love him and obey him. Romans 5 verse 5, we'll have this up on the screen. Paul, when writing to the Romans, writes, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, when we read this verse and we read that phrase, God's love, we think of it as God's love for us, right? God's love for us has been poured on, on, into us through the Holy Spirit, which is true. Uh, but many interpreters of the original text also believe Paul's trying to convey a sense that, yes, we are experiencing a love from God, but by him pouring his spirit into us, he's also giving us a love for God. It's a love from God and a love for God that has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so now, now we can love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength because he first loved us and his spirit has been poured into our hearts and has enabled us and empowered us to love God more and more every day that we live. 
And so if you want to understand the correct relationship between the law and Jesus or the law and the gospel, I think Pastor Bob Thune summarizes it nicely. He wrote The Gospel-Centered Life, a book that some of us went through before we launched this church. And he writes, The law drives us to Jesus, and Jesus frees us to obey the law. The law drives us to Jesus, and Jesus frees us to obey the law. Now let's see how this interaction with the scribe ends, okay? Look back at Mark 12, verse 32. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I love that. But what a different ending than most of Jesus' interactions with the religious leaders. Like most of the passages leading up to this, it's Jesus just saying like, you're wrong. You're misleading people. You're like the evil, wicked, rebellious tenants, and God's going to come and destroy you, right? It always ends on those notes. But this interaction ends a little differently, and he says, you are not far from the kingdom. The scribe here is not necessarily opposing Jesus, not necessarily being antagonistic to Jesus. They've actually agreed on some things. They agree on the commandments that summarize all the other ones. And so this initially sounds like an encouraging statement by Jesus. You are not far from the kingdom of God. It initially sounds positive. But as I've read it, it actually breaks my heart. Now, we don't know what happens with this scribe. And maybe after Jesus' death and resurrection, maybe he does follow Jesus and become a citizen of the kingdom of God. Maybe he does follow Jesus as king. But he hasn't at this point. And here's why it hurts me it's because he's close to the kingdom, he's close but he's not yet living in and enjoying the kingdom. He's close, but not quite there. Are you guys familiar with the phrase, close but no cigar? I I didn't know where that came from, and so this week I did some research, so here's some useless information for you. Uh, Back in the 1800s, early 1900s, at fairs or carnivals, uh, you would have the carnival games, right, that you could play. Uh, But back then, instead of winning overstuffed stuffed animals, oversized stuffed animals, uh, you you would actually win cigars. Now, don't worry. Back then, it was healthy to smoke. We did it in hospitals. It was all good, okay? All right? Uh, uh, but, but often, you would uh, play a carnival game, and you would win a, uh, a cigar. And so the phrase, close but no cigar, came from, man, those carnival games, you get usually pretty close to winning, right? Pretty close to the prize, uh, but no cigar. 
But isn't it all, almost even more disheartening to get so close and not win? It's more disheartening to get close and not win than if you were just not even close at all. For example, when I was in seventh grade, uh, I played football. And it was nearing the end of a game, and my team was down by a touchdown. And I was playing wide receiver, which sounds cool at first, but in seventh grade, there's not a lot of passing plays. That really just means you're off blocking someone far away from everyone else, okay? Uh, but with the game nearing an end, uh, we were on the 50-yard line, and I was out at wide receiver, and our coach calls a halfback pass. Now, for those non-football people in the room, that's when the quarterback hikes the ball, pitches it to the running back. It looks like it's going to be a run. Everyone blocks like it's going to be a run. But then the running back stops and passes it. And so the quarterback hiked it, and I blocked for a second like it was a running play. And then I released, and the running back launched it. And I was open, and I caught it, and I'm running I'm running. I can see the end zone. Like, I can taste the end zone. I'm already, like, planning my end touchdown dance. Like, I've got it in my head. I'm ready, right? Like, I'm going to be the hero of the game. I can see it. It's coming. I get within the 10-yard line, and I get tackled and caught from behind. My team still has time, but in four downs, we can't get into the end zone and we lose the game. Now that's painful, right? That's painful to get so close, but not actually there. I mean, if I got tackled at the 40 or the 30, I think I would not even remember the story. But getting tackled within the 10-yard line, I'm a man in my 30s still talking about a game in seventh grade, right? Like it's scarred me that deeply because I was so close to it. It was painful to be so close, but just not quite there. And so listen, church, this is why I hurt when I read this. As a pastor, as someone who's, who's, who desires to shepherd you and care for your souls, every one of you that's here this morning, this is why reading that passage, it hurts me. Because just knowing what God requires is not enough to get you into the kingdom. Like this scribe knew the law better than anyone in here will probably ever know God's commands. No offense to anyone in here. But I, I hurt because there are many people sitting in churches this morning and maybe even some in here this morning that are not far from the kingdom, but sadly are not yet living in and enjoying the kingdom. And that's why my heart breaks because there are many religious people this morning who set their alarms to get up for a church service and who are trying in their own strength to love God and they're trying in their own strength to love others. But no matter how hard they try, they still are falling short of what God has called them to. They are not far from the kingdom, but they are not yet citizens of the kingdom. And if that's you this morning, you need to hear this. The law drives us to Jesus. And Jesus frees us to obey the law. 
Jesus said in Mark 1, verse 15, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. O you that are not far from the kingdom, repent of your legalism and believe that you are accepted by God because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your, your belief in good works has gotten you not far from the kingdom, but the good, it is the good works of Christ applied to your account that will actually get you into the kingdom. Your belief in being righteous has gotten you not far from the kingdom, but it is only being clothed in the righteousness of Christ that will get you into the kingdom. Your desire to be a good and faithful servant has gotten you not far from the kingdom, but you will only hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, if you are in Christ, who is the ultimate good and faithful servant. Your desire to live in obedience has gotten you not far from the kingdom, but you'll only really love obedience and delight in obedience when Jesus pours his love and obedience into your heart. Or maybe there are some that lean the other way towards licentiousness. And maybe you need to repent from presuming upon the grace of God. And you need to believe that Christ has, yes, not only declared you righteous, but is now making you righteous. Your belief in the kindness of God has gotten you not far from the kingdom, but citizens of the kingdom enjoy that God's kindness leads them to repentance. Your belief in the forgiveness of God has gotten you not far from the kingdom, but citizens of the kingdom enjoy God's forgiveness and how it empowers them to forgive others. Your belief in the grace and love of God has gotten you not far from the kingdom, but citizens of the kingdom enjoy extending that same love and grace to their neighbors. Church, the commands of God are beautiful, but they should first and foremost quicken our feet to run to Jesus, our Savior. And when Jesus saves someone and they enter into the kingdom through repentance and faith, then they enjoy living under the rule and reign of Christ. God's commands are not him being cruel to us. His commands are not withholding anything from us. His commands then are actually blessings. Like life works best when we love God with all our heart. Life works best when we love God with all our soul and all our mind and all our strength. Life works best and we will enjoy life most when we love our neighbors as ourselves. And, O oh, church, may we repent of our sin and believe in the gospel today. Rest in the gospel today. May it never be said of us that we were not far from the kingdom, 
but not citizens of the kingdom. No, instead, may we be a people who are living in and enjoying the kingdom of God as we love God and love others. Let's pray.